Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we are discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three outstanding guests join me this week, so I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves. Thanks, Phil. I'm Adam Gorman. I'm currently working at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Um, my background is skill acquisition. Um, so at the moment, I'm very much in an academic role. Where I'm teaching, researching, but still very much enjoy connecting with, with coaches. Um, and prior to my, this sort of current academic position, I worked in a, an applied setting. So I was at the Australian Institute of Sport for 10 years. So, and prior to that, I was a PE teacher. So sort of got a, a hopefully a nice balance of the academic research side, but also the, the, um, the applied side and try to blend the two but uh yeah thanks for the invitation it's great to be here hi i'm alex lasku i'm an alum of qut um, and now at the university of canberra i'm just putting my finishing touches on my phd uh, which is really satisfying and that focused on skill acquisition and talent development in cricket um, so i always love coming to these conversations i have spent the last 15 years coaching and yes that means i started coaching as a 13 year old um, and it also means that i've spent a lot of time in the sports before I started researching them. So I think that's brought a, a really unique perspective to the way that I read our literature and research myself as well. And I'm Rob Mason. Thanks for having me. Um, I've got a bit of a mixed background. So I um, wanted to be a sports psychologist, uh, did a psychology degree, thought I might then be a teacher, did a teaching degree. I collected so many degrees, I thought I'd continue on and do a PhD. And so um, last year, I was able to submit my PhD looking at um, coach-to-athlete feedback, specifically in um, Australian rules football, but um, yeah, really interested broadly in the application of specifically verbal feedback, I guess, is my main interest. But um, yeah, I've had the good fortune to spend five years now working with the Port Adelaide Football Club in the um, AFL. Um, and yeah, working with the coaches there to um, help them develop their instructional practice and um you know, providing feedback around game day communication and how film sessions run. And um, so, yeah, I've been very fortunate to uh, have that kind of applied side of things at the same time as doing some study. So that's me. Thanks for having me, Phil. Oh, absolute pleasure to have all three of you. Thank you very much. Nothing to put me on my toes when you get a, somebody on that deals with, you know, feedback and language. And I'll be looking forward to a one-to-one -one debrief with Rob at the end on, on how I've hosted. So, um, yeah, there we go. Guys, no, I can't wait for this. Um, just before we get stuck into it, for our listeners, please remember to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links that we discuss and links to other resources as well. So, uh, Adam, we are going to come to you first. Do you want to tee us up? What are you going to talk about? Oh, I, I thought I'd talk about some applied work. Um, so this is with basketball. I think it highlights a lot of uh, key skill acquisition principles, but explains how they can be applied at the same time. So this particular group of athletes, basketball players, are very, very highly skilled, but perhaps uh, just needed additional experience. Um, so sort of in that transition from, very, very good junior players moving into the, the adult levels of competition. And the, the problem that we sort of observed 
in terms of their skill was they could run their set plays. So basketball, like a lot of team sports, has a lot of quite structured plays. Um, and in this instance, it was an offensive or attacking set play. And what we were noticing was that they knew exactly how to run the play, but when things didn't go quite to plan, which happens frequently in a, in a dynamic team-based sport, they weren't quite sure how to adapt that set play. So the, the problem was basically coming up with some sort of an activity to help them to adapt their, their set offensive plays. And so the approach that we applied was to, in essence, manipulate constraints. And in this case, it was manipulating some rules to help the players to learn how to make large and even quite subtle adjustments to those, to those plays. And it was really simple, very straightforward. Basically, I just called it the in and out game. So they would play a normal five on five game. Typically we'd play at half court because it was a bit easier to manage. But at random times in their set play, actually sometimes it was random, other times it was quite strategic, I would call out a, the name of one of the players. So I knew all 10 players on both, uh, all five players on, on uh, both teams. And what I would try to do was call out a player who was due to receive a pass at a certain point in time within the set play, knowing full well that I could disrupt it as, as I wanted to. And the rules were... As soon as you heard your name, you had to immediately leave the game, run and touch any of the boundary lines on the court with your foot, and then you straight back in and you're live in the game again. So players were only out of the game as long as it took them to run a sideline or a baseline, which could be a second, could be a couple of seconds, but not much longer than that, very quick. And so I knew roughly their set plays, and I just wait until there was a certain player who I knew was supposed to receive the ball next and I'd call that player out and say, Sally, she'd run out. And then the player with the ball, you could actually see it quite often. They'd think, uh-oh, I was supposed to pass to her. She's not there anymore. And so, of course, then it's just encouraging them to say, okay, well, we've got to find other options. And that scenario is very similar to a defending team who figured out the same set play, decided to double team, or, or overguard the, that particular player. And so there are just lots of instances like that. Um, and I sort of extended it to mix it up a bit more where I'd call out sort of random instances of that. So rather than it being strategic and trying to disrupt specifically a particular component of their set play, I would call out defenders and or attackers at, at any moment um, and it disrupted the structure of both teams. So in that instance, what I was trying to achieve is encouraging the players to very, very rapidly identify something that they could exploit in terms of getting an easier shot opportunity in, in attack or defensively shoring up a weakness because they've only got four players because one of them left the game. Um, and so, again, they're just having to adapt, read the play, they knew that something would emerge at some point in time, but they didn't know where, they didn't know when. So this constant disruption to their existing structure. As basketball, you can get quite structured um, in where you stand and where you, where you play. Um, and it's interesting, I've since adapted that approach to a much younger cohort. I think they're under 14 um, uh, girls team. And I changed it up. I didn't know their names and they had, I don't know if they even had set plays. So all I did was I changed it to 
calling out a number and then the, the color of the team. So if it was red versus blue, I might call out two blue and two meant two players from the blue team had to leave the game, touch the sideline and straight back in again. And so there it was more a case of encouraging these players to, in attack, same sort of principles, identify a, 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 something you can exploit, a weakness in the defence. But you got to do it quick because the defenders are only out for, for a moment or two. And likewise, in attack, if I called out at one or two or three attackers, the defence have lots of decisions to make as well. Where, where do we go? How do we exploit this? How do we, how do we defend this? And a lot of the, one of the things that I actually didn't intend this initially, but what I found was that the players had to very, very rapidly, because they could choose. If I call out two red, any two players out of the five could leave the game. They could send all five out, but that's not particularly strategically prudent. So what they had to do was rapidly assess their importance to the team structure. So in other words, if I was in a really important defensive position, where if I was to leave the game, our whole defence is shattered and we end up with an open shot attempt. Versus someone else who's still important, but not as important, we'd sort of want that player to decide, yep, it's me, it's me, I'm running out, communicating to the whole team, run out of the game and in again. And so they've got to make all those assessments. And then when they come back into the game after being out for a second or two, they've got to make a rapid reassessment of where I run. Do I, has someone covered my play? Oh, they have. Well, I better run over here. So this constant shifting and adapting of, of their overall team structure, just through the, the most simplest of constraint manipulations, calling players in and out of the game. Everything else was the same, just play. Um, and, and I found it to be real, really easy to implement, um, but really, really successful. Players start to really identify um, aspects in the game that they can exploit quite rapidly. Um, and it's fun too. The, I find the players uh, players really, really enjoy it. So I might leave that one there and I'll pass over to uh, to Alex. Oh, we'll, we'll dissect that for first up, I think. I mean, there's loads. Oh, sorry. No, 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 you're good. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, at least you just scribbled down. I, th I think that last point is is really key. Do you think less is more when it comes to constraints? Because from my experience, I would definitely feel, and, and I've been here, like I've got to put loads of constraints and have loads of rules and just challenge them in all these different ways. Whereas you've kind of just talked through really nicely there how one change has afforded them that, that, that someone will be playing like uh, Skillac bingo there with the language, won't they? I've said afforded already. Do you think that's just given them a really easy opportunity through one thing just to then develop and, and explore that and problem solve rather than being overly complex. So it's not, as you said, it's not a particularly difficult rule, but that could challenge a group for an hour, two hours, like three weeks. Do you know what I mean? You could stick with that for a pretty long time just to develop that understanding. In a word. Yes. Yes. I, I think simpler is better um, for, for two reasons. One is it's much easier for the, the coach to implement it. And secondly, it's easier for the players to understand. I think if it becomes really complex, I, I don't know, you're probably, it's probably making the game far more complicated than it actually needs to be. And the, for, if I think about, I'm starting to think of a, an instance where I used something really simple and it, and it was 
uh, and it was no better than something more complex. In fact, the more complex constraints have tried to vary, they've done exactly what I sort of said, that it was really difficult for me to try to implement or another coach. And the players were just struggling to understand the rules of the activity. It was still representative, it would still be game-like, but there's just too much going on. So the, the simpler ones, I think, are, are far more, uh, or can be far more effective. No, that's great to hear. Um, I, I guess open question to, to all three of you, but in terms of, I guess, the inherent nature of structure within team sports, in from my perspective, I tend to think that basketball, for example, you're probably more likely to win with a younger team if you have good structure and then skillful players. So do you think we could do with flipping that round and going, let's develop problem solvers first because they can always implement that instruction later and then would that be a, a seismic change to I guess the environments you guys see in the sporting landscape in Australia that actually it's probably the the wrong way around perhaps maybe wrong wrong choice of language but would would you flip that would you go problem solving first and then build structure later or would you be more comfortable with where it's at now I can jump in there if you like Phil I I'm coming to this from a very amateur perspective as a fairly green basketball coach myself. So I'm not coaching at the moment, but I spent um, five years coaching um, women's basketball back in Victoria. And this idea around being disruptive with your training design, I think is really lovely, particularly because I know for me as a, as a pretty fresh basketball coach, one of my anxieties was around memorizing the plays right as Adam's saying like there's lots of offensive sets and structures that coaches love and they'll sit there watching film and trying to um, diagram all of these plays that they see in the NBA or you know WNBL's got some really great like offensive coaches and so there's all of this emphasis placed on oh we've got to get the structure right we've got to get the play right um, and so at the start of a season the coaches will spend all this time in installing the set pieces and you know They'll have four or five really great offenses and, oh, how good is my offense look? Five on O, oh, it's brilliant. And then first scratch match comes around and suddenly they're denying the wing pass, which is, you know, the first step in the offense and all the players go, oh, my goodness, like this is what we've just done for eight weeks during preseason. Gee, we look good doing it, but now we've got some complexity thrown into the mix. We've got a defense. It's, it's a lot more difficult. So I think being able to build those adaptive players who are able to who are able to make those reads and go all right the wing pass is denied exactly the same as what Adam's describing like you know a certain player in that offensive set has just got to run out and touch the sideline creates the same kind of um, advantage for the defense which then there's obviously an advantage somewhere else for the offense that can be exploited I love that idea that that we can spend more time doing that kind of stuff and less time you know with those rigid structures i don't know culturally what the change is that needs to happen particularly around grassroots basketball coaching i know there's some brilliant coaches doing some really cool stuff around you know two on two three on three like all the constraints all of the constraints not all at the same time of course as we discussed but you know there's some really great stuff going on but there's also some i don't know still probably thinking back to you know when I was first starting there's still coaches like me probably who are just wanting to get through the sets and make sure they look really pretty in preseason. that's my uh, that's my take on it 
Go on, Alex, jump in. I'm happy to jump in there. Um, from a cricket perspective, firstly, the disruptive coach is now my new nickname. Um, and secondly, I've just picked up a under like tens to under twelves age group of girls. And most of them have never seen a cricket match in their lives. So anything that I do is disruptive. <laughs> first and foremost, but also the parents come with this preconceived idea that all of their daughters should play cricket like their sons, despite never having taken the time to give them throwdowns in the backyard or sit down on the couch with them or any of those, you know, like informal experiences. And so when we play a match and we do a lot of simulated match play because it can be very overwhelming at that age, we have to be very careful with the instructions that we give because they are incredibly literal at 10 years of age. Um, but they also like to have some sort of control. So we let them make up the rules. And it is amazing what they think a constraint is without understanding what a constraint is and the rules that they will come up with for each other or for themselves or the rules that they think exist in the game that we haven't seen because we're adults and we're experienced and I've played cricket my whole life so they they just have a different perspective on the world and if we can tap into that um, I think we can disrupt the game in ways that we've never thought of or see the barriers to their play that we've never seen because I can't remember how what I was like as a 10 year old girl probably worse than they were <laughs> Do you, do you think there's an element of tangibility in that? Like we like structure because it's tangible and we can see it as a coach. So there, there's probably that external justification of I'm the coach. This this is my role, you know, in inverted commas. Um, people are perceiving me and, and I need to be seen to be doing something that fits the ticks that that box almost. And then the players have that kind of similar perception. And actually, yeah, you know, I, I can kind of go, well, the, the plan is here. Like, look at the plan. Mm -hmm. The players didn't didn't undertake it properly or whatever. So it, it becomes this kind of almost self-fulfilling prophecy that that structure becomes a really important thing for a coach just because they're seen to be doing the right thing. It, it means that it, it can then, the, the responsibility can sit with the players, but also actually I know I can feel like I've done a good job. Whereas trying to be tangible in measuring someone's ability to problem solve like I just find that way more difficult and I think you can see it like don't get me wrong like we can clearly go three weeks ago you would not have seen that or you wouldn't have made that pass or you wouldn't have solved that problem but but how do you get players to recognize that and how do we maybe do that better as coaches yeah it's safe right like you get to go to the session you feel safe the parents feel safe because they're in safe hands and you look like a really good coach and the players go home and they're not necessarily challenged and and some days we need that but other days it's what stops us from growing um and so especially something like decision making we're not very good at giving them the elements that contribute to decision making because they're not tangible. How do I know whether or not the cover fielder is in the right position and whether or not that's a source of information that they want to make a decision? They don't know where cover is. <laughs> so then how do I help them make a decision like, oh, I'm going to run after I hit this ball because it went that way. For us, that's explicit. I can say I, I hit it through that gap specifically for that reason so that I can run. But at eight, they're just like, there's a player standing there. Here you go. I'll hit you the ball. That sounds nice. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's safe. And it's really hard to know which constraints you should mess with and when to do it. And I find when is things we struggle with a lot, especially emotionally, if someone has a bad day. And, and you mess with the wrong constraint that's it game over they're not participating anymore and that can be really scary as a community coach it's funny too isn't it that if we want players to become better at making 
decisions or problem solving. We've got to give them problems to solve. And so I think that that's sort of a big part of it, that we need to look at practice tasks. And it doesn't mean that they always have to be full-on games, but if we give players problems to solve in some way. So the first activity I describe, that in and out game, massive number of problems, but we can reduce that to something much simpler and it can still be a representative version of the game. But if, if there's only one main solution, maybe two solutions, as soon as they find it, well, what, what's the point of trying anything different? So I've found something that gives, allows me to score in some way. And, and that's something I ask coaches to actually look for. I'll say, look, when, when I see an activity is being, or a solution within an activity, the solution's being repeated over and over and over again. And you can see it. You know, coaches, anyone who's, even if you're not a coach, you can start to see it's like, yeah, they're really doing the same thing. That's when I decide, all right, well, they're just repeating the same solution. Problem solving is probably not um, uh, advancing as much as, as well as it could. So it's time to give them something different. And it could be varying that existing activity or it could be something entirely new. And let's revisit it, that act, same activity a couple of weeks later. But again, if there's no problem to solve, then you don't necessarily, you're not learning to problem solve. Something I found works well is, and, it, and I found it works pretty quickly. Again, it'll depend on the group, but not only setting an activity that has lots of problems, but being really comfortable and, and even though I live and breathe this stuff I still find it challenging to stand back and let them make their own choices find their own solutions and by nature exploration means that you're finding some things that work but a lot of things that don't work and both finding what doesn't work helps you to hone in on what does and so we often look at those I think and think oh that's just a mistake they're learning to make mistakes well that, that's what we do as human beings. We have to solve things. We, we figure out what's working, what's, what's not working. So for me, I, I think of it as giving, as giving the players a license. And I actually say that to us. I don't mind. As long as you are playing within the rules and it's not dangerous, you can try any different type of solution that you would like. And if it doesn't work, I don't mind. In fact, I actually like that. If it's really creative and you've tried it, that's great. And so I'll give them that license. Mind you, that can be shut down really quickly. As soon as one player tries one thing and we jump on it and say, oh, what was that? Come on. That player and probably the rest of the team are now thinking, I'm not trying that because I don't want the coach to have a shot at me like they did just then. The other thing I try is just little timeouts. It's all right, red team here, blue team here. You've got 30 seconds. All I want you to do is talk about what's working and what you might try differently. And and I, I, I love standing and just listening to what they're saying. It's just incredible. I, I've always been amazed at every level, the extensiveness and the, um, of their solutions and the creativity that they come up with. And some things I must admit, I'm thinking, I'm not sure about that one, but I never correct it unless it's dangerous. Again, I will, but otherwise, yeah, try it. And one happened recently. They tried something. I thought, yeah, I'm confident that won't work. And it did. It just worked. So, and these were these were the, the under 14 team. They found a solution, they tried it, and it worked. So I think giving that license to be creative and solve problems is really, really beneficial. 
How much do you think that then becomes about our ability to seek to understand? So, Rob, I'd be interested if, if this kind of your research threw any of this up. Like, how how do we, without just sitting down and asking players like thousands of questions to try and really understand their perspective, are they good, effective go-tos just to be able to get that? Because what we're seeing is obviously going to be completely different to what they're seeing. And then there's 30 of them, there's one of us, and all those different perceptions, all those different experiences, what came out of your kind of research that maybe just cuts through some of that? So I've got a maybe a more effective shortcut to, to really understand in a way that doesn't, doesn't challenge them, doesn't put them on the back foot. Because I know when I walk up to a player in a session, I'm like, oh, what did you see there? They're like, why? And do you know what I mean? Suddenly there's this wide-eyed, like, oh my God, I've done it wrong. Like, what? why is why is he asking me this? Like, without it being... And you try and do all the things, like you stand next to them, you don't, it's not confrontational. Like, do you know what I mean? You try all the little tricks, but because it's a, just tell me what you saw, tell me what you understood question, it, it almost by nature has that justification feel to it. And I'm, I'd love an idea of how I can avoid that if there is one. So no, no pressure on this answer, mate, but if you could solve my coaching problem, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll just jot down a quick book on it and uh, make it clear. <laughs> if you had the, the perfect answer to that, you'd be you'd be away, wouldn't you? Um, look, I think there's a piece in here with pretty much everything we've just discussed over the last 10 minutes around psychological safety, right? Um, you can't chuck in too many constraints and dial the, the difficulty up to 11 and expect that everyone's going to be okay the whole time. Like like Alex mentioned, like you're only one constraint manip manipulation away from someone not having such a good time, right? So there's an optimal challenge point somewhere in the middle there where it's the Goldilocks principle, right? Like it's not too difficult, it's not too easy. Uh, and that kind of taps into what Adam's saying around like, you know, if there's one solution that keeps emerging and, and that's being exploited over and over again, um, then, you know, we can start to look at some other tweaks to... Um, to nudge in a different direction, but specifically relating to the idea of, I guess, questioning as a coach or looking to get a bit of information. Like it, it's something like, I think it's a trust thing and it's something that's built up over time. And it comes back to the idea that we're not jumping down players' throats when something said it isn't quite right. And, you know, whether that's at training or during a game or wherever it might be, you know, match day often emotions are running a little higher and the tendency to go oh that was I don't know if you have a beep function on the podcast Phil but I'll, I'll keep it tame for the for the sake of your editing um time later that was rubbish um you know the, those kind of reactions can become a lot more natural in a game day situation and but those situations are also I think where the trust can get eroded a little bit particularly if if the coach has set up a culture and an expectation of, you know, experimenting, being creative, trying new solutions to things. So yeah, it's a tough one. It's there's considering the emotions of the athlete and their kind of motivational state. There's the whole coach side of things as well and making sure that you're, you know, biting your tongue and, and letting them do what they need to do to explore those solutions and just, I don't know, it sounds really simple, but it's not ripping their heads off if they give you the wrong answer. And I think most coaches have a really good understanding of that and, and you know, do their, do their best to abide by those principles. But we're all human and, you know, the pressure of coaching as it is, as an art and not a science sometimes can get the best of us. So I think that's a really long-winded and not particularly articulate answer, but hey, it's a starting point. Maybe it's draft one of the book. 
I, mean, I love that. You gave it a good go. I mean, and, and I think there's loads in there, right? Psychological safety would be, again, even how, how do you know someone feels safe? That like that, that just is probably the underlying question of me of is is that how they act? Is is that something they can actually articulate? Do you know what I mean? It becomes it's definitely it's definitely important and it's definitely a thing now in coaching. But I'd be really interested in exploring that in a load more detail with a load of coaches and just going, you know, just asking the players, like, how safe do you feel in this environment? Because that's that's probably going to be a starting point, I would think. But I'm just trying to think, actually, that's probably not a question. I probably assume quite a lot. Oh, yeah, no, they'll feel pretty safe, whereas maybe they don't like that's Yeah. Oh, there you go, mate. You give me loads to think about. Um, <laughs> I'm already conscious of time. So, Alex, I think we'll, we'll kind of we'll park Adam's discussion there, which was class. Uh, and Alex, we'll jump over to you. So uh, fire away. Yeah, so uh, just to start off my uh, illustrious career in the Carl Woods fan club, um, my paper is <laughs> specifically on enskillment. And I, I love the word enskillment. I love everything about this concept. Um, but it's something that's really difficult to translate directly into practice and know that you're doing it right. So I thought this is the perfect place to sort of unpack a lot of the challenges that come with such a large and uh, vague philosophy. Let's go with vague. Um, essentially, there are three components. We have a taskscape, which is essentially your performance environment. This is this is the game day. This is all the emotions, all the visual information, all the um, experiences that you're going to get in that high high pressure environment. Um, and it's ultimately the thing that we're trying to represent in our training environments. We then have our guided attention. So where we're actually looking for our information sources and how we might find them in different places. And especially in places that we might not necessarily be able to verbalize when somebody asks us, you know, what are you looking for? Or, or where is your attention? Um, and then finally, we have wayfinding, which is about active self-regulation. So the ability to use your perceptions, cognitions, emotions, and actions to make sense of this taskscape, of this performance environment. And the best way to, to see a wayfinder is essentially those people who look like they have all the time in the world when they're about to make a decision or, or set a play. And so when these things overlap we have the concept of enskillment and it's already a mouthful. <laughs> so to then unpack this and put it in a coaching practice has been really fun. Um, <laughs> and I think the hardest part in particular is how do I authentically represent all of these concepts in a sport, which is so based in tradition that anytime somebody is not facing a bowling machine is weird. And I have these conversations all of the time about what, training should look like what are we trying to do and we all have different ideas of what we're trying to do but if our end goal is essentially to create someone who is in skilled to navigate their environment in their own way and know how to do that implicitly based on safe experiences and, and challenging experiences at the same time then that task becomes a little less scary and a little more like another challenge to conquer and so each session i pretty much think of these things where is their attention going to be where do I want it to be versus where they might be looking or seeing or hearing or wherever have I got enough of that performance environment to challenge them but not terrify them <laughs> and have I given them a space where they feel like even at eight years old they can self-regulate and I will be there to support them if it does or doesn't work and there are definitely days where it has not worked and there have been tears and I do not handle that well. So we came up with a challenge meter 
And essentially I just draw on a whiteboard, a challenge meter, and they'll all have their own little magnet that they'll place in this challenge meter to tell me how hard they want the training session to be. And we'll average it out across because it always varies depending on the school day that they've had. And so we might start with a, a non-competitive warm-up for all the people who don't feel like winning or losing today, especially losing. That, that always gets on people's feelings and it hurts um, some days more than others. And then we might have like one activity that's a challenge that you can opt in and you can make that really hard for yourself or quite easy for yourself, depending on how you're feeling. Um, and then we'll always have some sort of simulated match play, either in small groups um, or as one big group working together. And I find for the most part, that's what my session plans look like. The specificity is not worth it, especially with young children, because sometimes we'll have one activity that goes great and goes for a whole hour, or it'll absolutely suck. And it went for 10 minutes and nobody wants to do this anymore. And now I have to come up with one on the spot. So to be governed essentially by these concepts, they're such big concepts that for anybody else who probably hasn't spent any time reading articles for fun, um, they wouldn't be able to carry this weight. So how do we translate these philosophies to a normal person who might be volunteering on the weekend because the ability to self-regulate and navigate an environment and not feel scared of game day is something that every child should have in particular and I've, I still know adults who haven't had the chance to develop those skills because they've spent so much time having answers shoved down their throats so for me, this is like the ultimate way of explaining why my sessions look like chaos half of the time and are like giggles the other half. And um, yeah, so I think if anyone can get their head around task, gateway finding and guided attention, that's the uh, the holy grail for me. Go on, Adam, you it's funny, Alex, you always, oh, sorry, you always described uh, the backyard game in, in Australian cricket, which is where kids determine their own teams, their own rules, um, the challenge point to determine what, what would I like it to be. And the typical backyard game doesn't have an umpire or a parent there to dictate how it should look. It's just, yeah, you make your own rules. Mine was if, uh, if we hit the ball into the lemon tree and knock lemons off, you're out, instantly out. So I, le I learned to play uh, offside shots instead of onside shots. It's, uh, it, uh, that, what you've described there is a, it, it's sort of that analogy to a back, backyard game. Yeah, and sometimes you have to preface it. You have to be like, look, okay, we're going to spend a lot of this time not doing it right. And I'm going to be the last person on earth to tell you that this is not right. But you may get in the car on the way home and mom and dad might tell you that it is not right. And I'm telling you, you don't have to listen to them. You can come back on Monday and you can try it again and you will be better for it because you stuck with it. And I think when you're starting a sport at any age, you don't really feel like you can do that until somebody justifies it for you. You almost feel bad for taking up the space to catch up. And when I transferred from cricket to baseball, that space felt really small as a skill acquisition specialist who should understand talent transfer. But it was so much bigger than I thought and I felt bad. I was like, oh, well, I should be able to pitch. It's just throwing, right? Like how hard could it be? And that was because the training environment made you feel bad for not being able to catch up immediately despite your strengths and your weaknesses. So I do think that a lot of our stuff is just literally you are a person in a sporting environment. How can we get you as a person to feel safe and explore and like you have the skills to do this 
You just may not have them now, and that's okay. Adam, I was going to say you're still slightly bitter about getting out in the lemon tree, but <laughs> that's my terrible pun, Jake. Thanks very much. Um, so, I, yeah. <laughs> um, my question there is: um, Do do you think we get obsessed with short-termism in in sport and in coaching? Because it's almost that. Well, what have I improved in this activity? And what have I improved in this session? And and we almost kind of we we chunk it together like a like a jigsaw. And maybe we don't ever step back regularly enough and go, I'm building the whole picture here. Like it's not about that one piece. That one piece is very unlikely to, to happen in one activity or one session. This could take, this could take years. Like, do you know what I mean? Like literally could take years of coaches working with me to get this right. But the whether it's the environment, whether it's the coaches, whether it's the parents, whatever, ends up being we live in this activity to activity session to session and kind of going well what did you improve today hold on who, who said I could improve something today like how when has this become a thing that I can learn instantaneously and suddenly get quite difficult skills like change them in the moment like yeah sometimes that's going to happen mm. but that might have taken two years to get to the stage where I finally hit that reverse sweep in the session and I'm just like yeah like that didn't happen in that one moment did it do you know what I mean so it's yeah, I'd be interested. How how do you guys see that, or how do you guys manage that? To run with your analogy, uh, my philosophy is that we're building the border pieces first. So everything that we do, it's going to be about setting that foundation that will allow you to develop those skills to one day feel comfortable enough to try that reverse sweep in a match, and. Even at a really, really young age, I think it's really important to reinforce with them that you're going to do things here that you'll probably never do in a match because you're the one who gets to decide whether or not you feel like doing that in the match or whether that opportunity is there to act upon in the first place. And you might not see that opportunity until five years later when you're playing with your friends in the park. You're like, wow, I could try this thing that we did. I don't know. I don't remember where I learned it, but I'm going to try it just in case. And I think that's the goal. It's not necessarily filling in the jigsaw for them. It's just making sure that they have a place to start and where they end up from that, it might be a completely different picture than when we started. And for most youth athletes, they're not going to end up in the sport that they're primarily coached in because most of the time we drive them away. So if we can keep them there or at least let them feel comfortable enough to come back, especially as an adult, I think that should be the, the point that we're trying here is that, you know, maybe they'll wake up one day at 30 and be like, you know what, I will go play cricket on a Sunday. That sounds like a good idea. I haven't played since I was 11, but you know, it wasn't too bad then. I reckon sometimes it's, um, it's, it's influenced so heavily by tradition and culture. I think a few, you, a few of us have touched on the fact that oh, this is how practice should look. This is how it looked when I was playing. And as soon as it doesn't look like that, we assume all that it must be wrong. And that could be players, parents, other coaches. So that traditional component is very, very powerful. Um, and then the other, I think, is the system itself. So as a coach, well, how, are you, how are you deemed to be developing and improving? Well, typically it's getting success, which is winning, and you might be with an under-10s team. So, so, okay, well, I want to improve my coaching, so I want to win, and then, then I can elevate through the ranks. And so well, what is, how do I win? We're playing on the weekend. 
big part of that could be, well, I've just got to tell them what to do. We don't have time to let people explore and problem solve and so forth. So that, that mindset in the system, I think, is sort of driving a lot of the, the coaching behaviours um, for, for that reason. It's, it's, you're, you're almost an outlier if you're doing things where you're providing problems, allowing players to solve, acknowledging that it could take them days, months, years before you actually see um, significant change in what they're doing. I think that phrase that you used before, Phil, is it, was it short-termism? And have you copyrighted it? Because that's probably a book title at some point. Um, I think, yeah, as I think everyone has said, there's, there's a relationship there between the level of competitiveness or pressure to compete and win and that short-termism as a philosophy, I think. Um, you see it, I mean, I've seen it heaps in footy working, um, you know, at, at that level where winning is everything. Um, and I think there's a, there's a tendency to spotlight week to week. So, oh, we did really badly at X, Y, or Z last week. And so at training this week, we're going to practice X, Y, and Z because we need to get better at that. And so the spotlight gets shoved over here and suddenly you're great at those things. And wherever the spotlight wasn't that week, suddenly you get worse at those things. And um, I think that's, it's a really, again, it's a really human thing to do. And I guess, yeah, it comes back to, to those pressures that everyone feels in, you know, various facets of life. And, you know, we can get really kind of broad on this, on these type of things, but it's really, um, it's really important to kind of stick to your guns and, and realize that some of those longer term things are going to take time and patience and to kind of um, get a ticket behind Alex in the, in the Carl Woods fan club line. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him um, while he was um, working in skill acquisition at Port Adelaide and, and I guess one of the big things of his that, that stuck with me was just the, the really condensed number of training activities that, that we had for a period there. And so, you know, with four or five training activities, you can get a season's worth of training um, just by changing one or two things within those activities. And so, you know, players aren't learning a new drill, if you like. I know that's a dirty word, but activity uh, every week um, because there's a different um, because there's a different focus based on what was stuffed up in the game. But they're actually going back to something familiar and just emphasising a different part of the game based on what the coaches have decided. So I think that's kind of one way to get that common thread through. And um, yeah, easier said than done, given the all those pressures of of competition and winning and keeping your face on the back page for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. But, yeah. I think, yeah, I think you make a great point there around just how you structure those practices, games, you know, we'll call it whatever you want within your session. And, and that was a, a real big thing for me. And I've definitely not got it right, but the difference in, oh, actually like one season, I think I went back through all the session plans and, and we'd probably done, I don't know, 50 or 60 different variations. And we're kind of going, why have they never got a huge amount better? And you go, well, because we gave them 40 minutes to, to learn a game, to understand the rules and to then apply it and to then try and discover within it. And then we're done and we probably never come back to it. So actually how useful is that? 
and I've seen a lot more coaches kind of come up with, you know, they just brand the game. It is uh, X game, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we had one was in Canada, Ravens touch, right? Rules are bang, bang, bang. Everybody knows the rules and we're going to play this probably most weeks for at least 15, 20 minutes. Because again, go to that longer term picture, you can just build and build and build and build and build and build and build. It's not a suddenly a new discovery every week to this is this is how I need to format this game or what, well, what does this rule mean? It's going, oh, well, when we played this last week, this was really effective. So come back to Adam's point around, you know, you, suddenly you're finding solutions that work continually. Okay, well, now, now we'll manipulate, now we'll change. And it just, I think it just allows for that longer term development, but also that just far more constructive, maybe inducive environment to actually problem solving and discussing and, and I almost kind of layering stuff. But I mean, my question is, I've got no idea. Do we think that actually improves transfer? Because ultimately that's that's the big thing, isn't it? Like we can all have incredibly wonderful sessions and they can look brilliant and everyone can enjoy them. But if it doesn't transfer across to the match or the game, then it's still probably a failure in some form. So like coming back to that performance state, like how, how do we take training and make sure it is transferring more often? Is that about making it closer to the game is that about psychological safety like obviously it's a really complex answer but but what are what are your collective thoughts on how do we increase levels of transfer i'm happy to start here i think you have to be in the exact same position as a person that you would be in the performance environment but the the match that you're playing or the activity that you're playing doesn't have to look perfectly like the performance environment it just has to give you the same stimuli right you have to look feel act the same way that you would in that performance environment. And we can do that in so many different ways. We can do that just by giving a defender a time where they're not allowed to attack yet. They can't move until we tell them to, and we can manipulate that time. They're still feeling the pressure of having a, a defender approach you and you still have possession of the ball, but we can still manipulate that to a point where it suits the needs of that particular activity. And so I think a lot of coaches get lost in the fact that, oh, well, you know, cricket is a 12-man game. We have to have everybody in their fielding positions. We have to have someone at, you know, deep square who doesn't touch the ball for an hour because that's realistically what happens in the game. You're like, well, that's great, but that kid has not learned anything for the last hour except how much they hate cricket right now. So is what are we really trying to teach them here? We're trying to be patient. We're trying to make sure that they're switched on when the ball comes to them. Like being able to deconstruct a performance environment to be like, what stimulus is there and what do they need to know about it so that they can act appropriately in that scenario? Um, I do think it's all about feeling, acting and behaving in the same way. Like just, you just have to feel like you're there, but it doesn't have to look like you're there. It's almost like a virtual reality. I think another, I agree, Alex. I think another important point is just making sure that the, the intention of the activity is actually addressing what we'd call a rate limiter, so the, the underlying problem. So I'll give sort of a, a, a simple kind of example. It might be that we, it actually, here's an actual example. So in AFL, there's a footballer who the coach felt was, wasn't um, needed some work on, on his decision making. We looked at a lot of footage of this player in games and then realised that what the most prominent factor, in other words, rate limiter or problem that was hampering this player's performance was actually um, a reluctance, perhaps a lack of skill in handballing on their non-preferred side. So it was manifesting as decision-making problems, but in actual fact, the underlying problem was handballing. And so 
the you could go away and and um, conduct all this practice time on decision making activities where in actual fact that well that's probably not the underlying cause of the problem here this player just needs work on their non-preferred hand um, in this environment and it could be other things too it could be that well, it's not actually a skill problem at all it might be psychology it could be nutrition maybe it's fatigue who, who knows but i think trying to make sure that the we're clearly identifying the underlying cause of the problem and then we can really specifically target that in practice now i make that sound easy but it's often not because the cause could be multifaceted but at least trying to really delve into what it might be and performance analysis analysts are very very good at, at doing that and i think we need to um, use their expertise to help hone in on what a problem may actually be it's its underlying cause yeah, so even in that scenario, a bad coach would make that player go stand against a wall and they would sit there and handball with their non-preferred side <laughs> against this wall and to see what happens, right? But a good coach would be like, okay, today we're going to do the same familiar activity and we're going to do it, but you're only allowed to use your non-preferred side to, to offload the ball. So there are two, like it would still address the rate limiter in some way, but how much it would transfer would differ really greatly depending on which activity you chose. So, and it's a hard thing to deconstruct just as a, a normal person. I mean, without getting into the drills are bad debate, why, why do we think that's kind of the whole muscle memory, just kind of rote drilling? Why do we think that's still, still a big thing within coaching and and i know some people would would argue really strongly the kind of the it depends guys i guess would would argue there might be a time and a place for it like Alec, why why would you say you'd much prefer them just to go and do it in in a game in a live scenario rather than in isolation we develop a different reaction between what we're doing and what happens as a result. And we train a lot without consequences. So then when we actually get to the performance environment and we try to do something and it doesn't work, that's like an offense on who we are as a person rather than just a failed experiment. And so unless you're learning with that feedback loop, essentially of I do this thing, this thing happens, then when it doesn't happen or we get to a scenario that we're unfamiliar with, we then don't try that because we're so uncertain of what's going to happen. We're just going to freeze instead. I don't have something to fall back to because if I get it wrong, that'd be terrible. I can't get it wrong if I hit it against the wall. But if I miss my player in a real play, that's inconsequential. I'll, I'll be benched for that. And so being able to create that feedback loop safely is, is probably one of the best ways to make that stick and make it a viable option when you're stuck in the real game. Do you, do you think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you think there's a time and place in terms of if we're developing like fine motor skills? So I'm thinking, I don't know much about FL, but if, if you're hitting the ball with your hand, like if you've got a defender to think about and it's your wrong side and I need to move and I need to do all these things, like there's a lot of information we've got to process there. If I'm just stood there hitting the ball against the wall, like I can probably focus in on where on my hand did it hit? Like, did it come off the right bit? How does it feel? How does it sound? So by taking away or dialing down the level of information, do you think there's still a place for that if if that's what I needed to kind of feel and work on or is it always about trying to keep it within the the reality of the game maybe a word best mm. word I can think of yeah I definitely think there's a place if there if, if fear is a really significant factor and sometimes it's just nice to have maybe one other person that you can interact with so I would definitely say it's like 
facing a bowling machine. The machine is not the problem. It's the lack of variability that's the problem. And so if you change that to potentially someone throwing you the ball instead, there's just natural variability in that interaction alone. So maybe instead of doing it against the wall, you do it with a partner. And now you have a mentor that's there with you and you're part of that process together. So there is space for isolation of an activity, but definitely not isolation of a person within that activity, especially in team sports. So there, I wouldn't say no, you know, never just sit there and hit the ball with your hand, but I would recommend doing that as a warm up rather than the actual activity. Can we think of a warm up activity that would require somebody to potentially hit a ball with a closed fist with both hands so that it doesn't become such a scary thing to try for the first time? I love that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's a brilliant answer in terms of, yeah, remove the fear, m- make it just commonplace. Which, which I guess, yeah, I, I would just kind of brains jumping around. There's, there'd be a lot of coaches that talk about just developing all the skills. I, you know, mm. you know, Russell Earnshaw talks about it's, it's your times table. Like you wouldn't just let kids not learn their three and seven and nine times table. We'd, we'd only work on the other ones. Like I think it's a really great analogy because we want to be doing all of that more of the time. So go on, Adam, mm-hmm. jump in. I really like that, the whole notion of task simplification. And tennis, I think, are doing it really, really well. We, we teach this in a lot of the, the uni classes where they, they're just changing equipment and rules. So um, you've got a mini net, a mini court, um, tennis balls that are larger and deflated, so they're not as bouncy, they don't bounce as high or as fast, smaller rackets. And so now kids of much younger age and lower skill level can still play a game of tennis. And even if holding a racket, um, intercepting a, a tennis ball is, is difficult, Tennis Australia have, have sort of given other alternatives. So it could just be, if they're really struggling with that whole concept, it could be two people, either side, one either side of the net, little singles game, small space, there's a net in place, I hold the ball and I throw it to my, to, over the net. To, the, to, to my opponent. And I'm trying to throw the ball so that they can't get it back. And when you watch p- two people doing that, at first glance, you think, wow, well, hang on, that's, that's not a lot like tennis. They're holding the ball in their hand. They're throwing it. You never, ever do that. But if we think about it, well, if we gave them a racket and we said try to hit it, they just get absolutely no success whatsoever. So in that case, all we're doing is demotivating them. They're just thinking, I didn't think I could play tennis. You've just reinforced it. I'm off. I hate this game. Don't want to play. But when you watch two kids throw the ball, even adults, different skill levels, throw the ball over the net into space, you suddenly see, oh, they move into the path of the ball to intercept it. And they're not intercepting with a racket because they can't do that yet but they're just understanding the concept of where to throw the ball into space so it's difficult for my opponent and when the ball's coming towards me I need to move into a space where I can catch that ball and then throw it back so we've got the essence of tennis at a level that this group of, of, of individuals adults children depending on their skill level can actually compete so and would we do that with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer? Well, of course not, because they need something that's far more representative and far more challenging. But for kids and even lesser skilled adults, well, that's, that's a starting point for them. And then we progress from that point. But I love that whole notion. And some sports are doing it very, very well, task simplification. 
can confirm it gets very competitive. <laughs> we did play a version of that at like a, a teacher conference for professional development and physical education teachers. And to see, you know, grown men and women with these baby rackets in their hands, you'd be amazed how hard you can hit a ball with those things. I'm just jumping on the really left field example here as well. Like, so I, I play a bit of piano and I, I've studied music and really enjoy that kind of stuff outside of the sporting kind of area of my life. And one of my first memories was um, of sitting with a really, really simplified version of an ABBA songbook when I was maybe seven or eight years old. And so it, it's task simplification to achieve, you know, to achieve success on a task without it being the big complicated end product. So I'm there playing along just one finger, all the notes of Waterloo and mum's kind of half recognising what the song is. Um, and I'm getting that squirt of dopamine because, hey, I'm playing the piano really, really well. Um, and I think in some regards, looking to other fields can be really fruitful for finding ways that we can simplify tasks in, in really fun and creative ways. And look, if that's playing Waterloo on a really horrible looking um, 70s Mission Brown uh, electric organ, um, then so be it. But yeah, there's there's lots of examples from, you know, music and, and creative fields, particularly where task simplification is a really um, strong part of kind of learning and, and having some early confidence with um, developing those skills. Do you think that then just becomes about the coach's ability to understand the task in enough detail to simplify it? Like, is, is that why coaches may struggle? Sounds like an obvious question now I've asked it, but it, it, it maybe in the moment they're just, maybe that's a lack of planning, maybe is a real lack of understanding of the, the movement patterns or the detail within it. So, I, I mean, what do you guys think on that? I think you're right, Phil, that it's, um, it, it's challenging. You have, as a coach, you've got to be creative. And it, it does take some time. As a, as a coach, you go through some trial and error yourself. I've run some activities that I thought would be fantastic in my mind. And then I run it and thought, yes, it didn't quite pan out as I thought. And others that I just tried, I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. I think it'll be okay. And it was much better than I thought. But it, it does take creativity to do that. And the easier alternative is the, the blocked, repetitive, traditional type approach where it's the same thing over and over again we get great control um, it often looks good as we're repeating the same solution over and over with great success nothing to disrupt it in any way because the fenders are removed and so forth and I think it's easy to gravitate towards those and I understand why coaches do that uh, I used to coach exactly that way it's all I knew my whole playing career in half a dozen different sports was exactly that um, and then when I looked, started coaching, I looked at every other coach, they were doing the same thing. And so that's, that's what I did. I'm fortunate that I've experienced other, other means of doing that. But um, yeah, it's, it's challenging. There's no, no question. But once you understand, I find the principles of, of skill acquisition in particular, I think they form the ingredients and you can build your own cake out of that. The principles underpin everything. That's what I've found helps me by far. If I'm not sure, I always go back to, okay, what am I trying to achieve? I want to make sure I maintain perception action coupling in its most natural state as possible, still catering to the individuals with, to, with whom I'm coaching um, and, and keep working back from principles and then 
applying it in that way. I, I guess it comes back to that tangibility point we talked about earlier, doesn't it? Like it, there can be a very tangible outcome from me stood against hitting a ball against a wall and feeling like I've done a great job after I've done that a hundred times, as opposed to I can come out of a session when it's been far more representative and, and far more kind of information led. Well, actually I feel like I've done less, but maybe that one's better for me. So yeah. Interesting. Um, cool. Right. I think we'll pause that one there. Rob, we are coming to you. Uh, finish us off. What are you going to chat to us about? Right. Well, um, we've had the Carl Woods fan club. I'd like to uh, reinitiate the Doug Lemo fan club, um, of which I hope to be a card-carrying member. Um, lucky enough to sit in a workshop of Doug's last Saturday morning, which I think was must have been Friday evening over in New York, um, which was for the AFL's Level 3 coaching um, course. Um, so, yeah, Doug's written a blog, um, which is on a website called Codex Analysis, um, which is run by a fellow by the name of Darren Lewis. Uh, and I'm next cab off the rank to write a blog um, after Doug. So there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there as well. So hopefully you guys can help me nut out exactly what that next blog topic will be on. Very choose your own adventure. So Doug's written this blog called Video Rules for Coaches. And so... Um, as I was going through my PhD, like my, my first study, kind of a pilot study was on um, video feedback. So this really common setting where coaches sit down with players and review footage of a game or training and talk about it. Um, and I went through this whole phase of going, oh no, why have I picked this topic? Like this is surely one of those traditions in coaching that just happens because it's always happened. And what's actually the point? Like what are, what are players walking out of the room with? Like, is this, is this useful? Um, I ended up justifying it, I think, in my thesis. I mean, it got passed, but um, I think Doug has really nicely kind of distilled why video happens and why it's important in this blog. Um, so he says... Perhaps this is obvious, but elite athletes spend a lot of time studying video. There's only so much time athletes can spend on the physical side of training before they face the limits of body and physiology. And certainly, you know, having heard the high performance staff um, at Port Adelaide sometimes get a little bit freaked out at how many extra kicks for goal players are having after training and, you know, wanting to make sure they get enough rest in and all that kind of stuff. There comes a place where, where film is important. Um, and it can be a really valuable learning tool, but um, do we do it well? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, so yeah, basically these blogs that um, Darren has put together on, on Codex Analysis, one of which is by Doug Lemov, goes through some rules for, um, for running effective video sessions, basically. So it's kind of taking some, um, some principles of learning design and maybe effective practice design, if you want to frame it that way. And um, and kind of talks around, and I guess my, my question for the group is around how do we make um, film sessions, video sessions more representative so that we're able to take something from that very decontextualised environment and maybe transfer it. Um, I don't know if that's too broad a place to start, but Phil, I'm sure you'll narrow the question down as you always tend to. No, 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 it's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, I... 
I'm just trying to think of some of the good stuff that's going on. I mean, Coach Logic would would be the obvious one for me. I think they do some great stuff in in sharing, and lots of people use their platform um, because it's a good platform. But actually, they they share some really good snippets and nuggets around how how clubs and and academies and various things kind of go about changing maybe that traditional model of analysis. Like I love the one where you you just give every player five minutes. So all they've got to do is just watch five minutes of the game and note down and tag the important stuff that they think happens in that five minutes rather than this, let's let's watch 80 minutes and, you know, maybe get bored and and not be that interested in some of it because, you know, maybe it's a, we want it to be a highlight reel and we want to just watch the good stuff. I don't know, but, but actually being able to go into depth in areas that aren't your specialism. I feel like that's a really good thing. If you're a, you know, a forward in rugby and you've got them to watch the backs play in that five minutes, because maybe the, it was only the backs that touched it. Like, well, actually now I've got to understand what they're doing and I've got to probably go and seek some information from them and, and do some of that type of stuff. So I think there's maybe there's definitely more modern ways than the classic coach just stands at the front and watches the game and points out all the stuff that went wrong. Cause I mean, there's some horror stories, aren't there? Like we hear players all the time going, I made a mistake in a game and all I was thinking about was getting chewed out on, on the Monday video session by the coach in front of the whole club. And you just go like, that can't be good for anybody. Like how is psychological safety? How is anybody learning from that? So yeah, I guess there's, there are definitely more modern approaches to, to doing that kind of stuff, but it's personally, it's something that's on my IDP. Like I still struggle with that. Less is more. I want to show 10 clips and then I realize how much I talk through each of the clips and how much I ask questions. And, and then it becomes, you know, that 15 minute video session is now like 40 minutes and suddenly, you know, everyone's just kind of going, Oh yeah, well the, the first couple were maybe okay, but it's, it's, it's definitely a work on for me to be succinct and to get the detail and to share that information beforehand and stuff. But it's, I do find it a real, a real challenge. Um, I'm not sure I've answered your question there, but yeah, just just rambled for a bit. So, uh, Adam, Alex, what are your thoughts? How how do you guys go about it? I've tried just broadly um, flipping the roles. So the coaches simply um, edit up the footage and give the players a problem to find in the footage. So, and one was um, scouting. So, in preparation for some world champs, volleyball players, and then. I think they were the national team at the time. They were given footage of their opponents and typically their kind of direct opponent who, who they'd be matching up against on the other side of the net. And they were simply told, you scout this person. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And the footage was all nicely edited. They, they had their focus. They, I think they'd sit in pairs as well so that they could discuss what they're each seeing. And then they went back into the broader group and presented what they found. So you've got the engagement, you've got, you've guided them, uh, but you haven't told them a whole list of everything to look for. It's just broad enough, but not too broad. And you're turning the tables. The players are doing the thinking. I think the concern is often that, oh, what if the players miss something? What if they miss this element? Well, the coaches are still there. They can still sell. What do you think about this particular player? Did you notice that he liked to do this? What do you think about that? How might we defend that? So you can still provide information it's just you're turning the tables and the players are generating it rather than uh, re- re- being provided that information cricket's traditionally too slow to really do uh video footage it's only really become a recent thing and i do think we spent too many years just hosing down the person who got out at a stupid time 
rather than trying to work out whether our field placements were the most effective for a particular batting style or whether our bowling plans even stood the test on the score sheet versus how it actually played out in real life. And so I do think there's a lot to learn in the video space for cricket, but purely because it's not really seen as a necessary tool given how long it would take to edit the action moments within a real match, even within a T20 or a 50 over. Uh, 50 overs feels like forever when all you've played is T20 is your whole life. So I do think that it's more the reflective conversations that we have and how we frame those is our version essentially of the video session. And some people are really good at it because they're empathetic and, and know which buttons to push and, and when to sort of let the players speak. Um, but people are also really bad at it when they have a bone to pick after a particular session and they want to make sure that people remember that that was a mistake. And when, when you don't do that, when you don't confront people, you give them the space to speak before you do a lot of them just sit there awkwardly and stare at you like what you want me to tell you my opinion like is that really an okay thing to do here and the only time that I've ever yelled at a cricket match was to tell an athlete to put her chin up because she was upset that she missed a boundary <laughs> and I could see it in her body language from a kilometer away so you know when that's the only time that you actually raise your voice when you give them space and you're quiet, they don't really know what to do with it yet. So uh, a video session for a, a lot of the girls, especially in cricket, is literally just a matter of someone sitting on the sideline as the 13th man, potentially running out drinks. And you look at the batter together and you think, okay, well, what would you do? Like, would you, would you move the field? Would you bowl in a particular way? If you had to, all of a sudden I disappeared and you had to have the team chat at the drinks break, what would you say? And, and that's, that's how we chip away at those experiences. There's a, a common element in here around self-regulation, isn't there? And it ties in nicely. I mean, if you want to call it wayfinding, if, to tie it into the previous uh, bit of content, maybe you could. Like, and, and it's something that Adam touched on as well around how do we create those opportunities for self-regulation in a film setting so that it's not the traditional lecture style um, thing. Um, yeah, we've we've used different kind of methods at Port Adelaide over the years to try and scaffold that experience so that it doesn't go just from, all right, the coach is talking for an hour and a half and suddenly it's the players and they're leading it and it's only 15 minutes. Like that's a, you know, daylight between those two kind of modes. But um, yeah, we've done some interesting little experiments around, you know, running three or four video edits on the TV that's in the gym before the afternoon rotations where they go into meetings. And so they get a couple of looks through the video before they're asked to analyze it in the session, just to build a bit of trust and confidence. And again, going back to what we spoke about for psychological safety as well. Um, and that's something that Doug recommends in this blog as well is around playing the video more than once um, because what the coaches are looking at the seventh and eighth time they look at it very different to what the, the players are looking at the first time they see it. Um, there's a really Great quote. Oh, gee, I'll have to go back and uh, and find the actual reference from it. But it's definitely in my thesis. Um, you know, they all just blur into one after you haven't read it for a while. But there's a um, study looking at um, this kind of video setting in in the UK in in soccer and um, asking one of the players what they looked for in a in a video edit, and they said, oh, "I just look for myself, like whether I look okay." Like their first concern is, "Am I going to be embarrassed in this clip?" And so getting that embarrassment out of the way by rolling it a couple of times first, whether it's in the gym or during the session, I think is a, is a nice strategy, but yeah, I'm, I'm wondering around this link between 
with attention, whether it's in a, a training activity or whether it's in a film session, you know, how can we best guide our athletes' attention in a way that is helping them to, and I'm, I'm really struggling for terminology here, but to spot those affordances and act on them. I think you nailed that, mate, with, in terms of the priming. Like, wh- why would we not share it on the WhatsApp group or the, the the platform or whatever beforehand? Like, let let people that want to and they're engaged enough go and watch it twenty times, because actually it's going to make for a better discussion. Just just throwing them, it is pretty much throwing them under the under the bus, isn't it? As you say, like, right, I I've watched this however many times in prepping it, and I'm going to show it once or twice, and then I'm going to ask you some questions about dissecting it, and it's just it's just putting so many people on the spot. It's really not a, a particularly conducive. Um, or productive I'm amazed we actually get any sort of positivity come out of those type of sessions Um, I have to say so I I know very deliberately because of the group I work with I don't name names so and I and I'll frame that before every session and I'll say you know I've highlighted this as an example it's not the example it's not a criticism of the people that are in this clip I could have found three or four others this is probably the best one around the point that I think is most important so I'm not saying, oh, you know, Bob or Brian, you did this, you did this. It's let's look at our principles. How have we applied our principles here? Okay, well, where did that break down? What's our solution? So hopefully I make it as in-person, impersonable as possible. Um, so actually they don't feel like they're being picked on. Like if I kind of said, I think one week I said, like, if I could blur out the information so you didn't know who that person was, I would. I can't because you wouldn't see anything, but it's not about you doing that. Like, I don't want you to feel bad because that's the clip I've picked. I just want you to look at the information and go, why did that happen? So you're not feeling, and and I I mean, I've not, I've not followed that up in the way I should do probably and gone. Does everyone feel all right about this? You know, do you feel like I've picked on you? Because I I hope they don't. So I'm, I'm again, I'm presuming their psychological safety to a certain degree, but I feel like that maybe makes a difference to, let's look at the principle of why the error happened or whatever it was that happened positively. Like it's not always a negative rather than, yeah, Rob, you know, unlucky mate, you're, you're the one I'm picking on today. Look at this clip. Why didn't you do this? Do you know what I mean? It becomes a, like, there's never a specific question to those people. It's always general. Go on, Adam, are you going to jump in? I worked with a really experienced basketball coach, developing players who again, very, very skilled, but just needing to take that next step in terms of their understanding of the game. And he used to describe it as using video, that is, describe it as an opportunity to encourage the players to become students of the game. And and the example he used to give was they'll all hone in, and I think Rob mentioned this before, um, they'll hone in, oh, the great dunk. That was was fantastic. Wow, that that looked good. But the coach wanted them to understand, well, what created that dunk? You don't get dunks easily in any, at any level of basketball. What, what created that? And so he wanted them to understand the broader, in, in a lot of instances, the, the structures and principles of play. Well, it was, it was a great screen that happened 10 seconds before that. And that screen had to be good, had to be well-timed, in the right position, and then the rest of the players, they had correct spacing, um, a little fake here which kept that defender uh, occupied, which then meant that created the opening for this player to get a great pass, dribble and dunk. 
We only look at the end point and think, great, done, good score. But what created that? Let's work back from it. And that was his whole philosophy. And I really liked that because in with the video, you can really dissect that and see what did uh, eventuate and why it, why it happened, which you can often miss if, you, if it's happened in practice, for example. It's hard to say, all right, everyone stop. Let's, let's revisit what that looked like. And half of them are thinking, oh, I can't even remember where I was standing just then. So the video kind of gives a nice medium to use in that regard, I think. And do you think that's about teeing up questions on the video? So I uh, kind of the, you can telestrate, you know, telestrate a kind of analysis software or even just iMovie or something like that. Like you can, you can put language and questions on. I just wonder whether priming, it might be, this is a great dunk, what allowed us to do it? Do you know what I mean? So actually you're just, you're being quite indirect with the question. You've now, there's something that caused it, go and search for that information. And maybe that that's an effective way to tee up the conversation. Yeah, now watch it 20 times and work out all the intricacies, like you said. Is, is that something they were doing or? It was, in fact, they used to engage me to create those questions. I knew the game, knowing here as well as the players or the coaches, but well enough to be able to kind of edit the footage. In essence, it was a game and I'd just have five minutes of footage and I'd just pause it at predetermined moments. And I'd ask exactly that, just pointed questions, similar to the one I explained, what, what led to that dunk? Can you tell me what each player in the attacking team did to create that? Um, other things I'd said, what let them watch, say 30 seconds of footage of a team that they might not have ever seen before and say, okay, let's pause it there. Who can tell me? The, the defensive tendencies of this team. That's all right. Well, they like to do this. This guy's strong here, etc. Okay, now tell me, how do you counteract that? What offensive style of play and what, what five players on the court would you put to counteract that particular defense? So it's very strategic in nature and really sort of deeper, broader, principle-based type questions, but always guided with uh, questions that that guide their attention. So it's not just watch this, tell me what you think. I think that's just too much. So, well, wow, I could think a lot of stuff, but if you can guide them, and but it's not too directed, um, I think then it becomes too far the other direction where it's just, yeah, is, is that player left or right hand? Right hand. Okay, <laughs> great. Check, done, let's move on. So yeah, we didn't get much from that one. So it needs to be that, that balance, but yeah, guiding with questions really powerful. I love that. Rob, I'm interested in, Adam said that, you know, creating students of the game. How, how did Port Adelaide go about, I presume, like academy level and, and those younger players on, on kind of the pathway um, through? How do they develop analysis skills in, in those guys? Like it's maybe slightly easier than a community setting because those guys probably want to be professional players, right? So they, they understand there's a need to do that. But um, I find a lot of the time the struggle is, people just probably aren't that interested in watching back. Like there's, there's a level of commitment they have to getting better and maybe 20, 30 minutes of video or an hour of video like is beyond what they're willing to do. So have you guys got any experience of, of that kind of situation? Like what, what maybe helped them overcome that to really get into the fact that you, you don't have to play a game on a pitch to live that experience. You could, you could watch a hundred games and in theory of, got a hundred games worth of experience. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it, I think it's the biggest shortcut to getting better without actually spending time on the field, but how, how might that look for your guys? Yeah. Good question. I, I guess for a bit of 
cultural context for the international listeners. We probably don't have as uh, structured uh, academy in AFL um, as you might see in in soccer in the UK for or football, as I should say in the UK. Um, we've got um, you know under eighteen programs and and talent academies and. At Port Adelaide, we've got our Next Generation Academy where we'll bring in some um, some younger players and they'll you know visit the club for a week and and sit in and have the, exactly the same experience as an AFL listed player. Um, but even at the at the next level down from AFL, like our um, South Australian State Football League is one of the strongest in the country, and and those competitions also have um, some degree of video analysis. Um, was one particularly. Uh, well-resourced club who um, they use their um, their scoreboard at their oval to to play video footage back during training and have that really immediate um, video feedback, I guess, on on the last rep or the last um, five minutes of game or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's an easy answer to um, to kind of building students of the game, particularly in those age groups as they come through. There's it's always good to have a positive experience with film first up. So, you know, it's not a 90 minute session and it's not a, um, was it a hosing down news before Alex was the phrasing? Uh, um, yeah, just, you know, a complete sledging of a certain player. Um, you know, you want it to be a positive experience. You want it to be that kind of um, warm learning climate where, you know, you can shout out the wrong answer and you're not getting ribbed afterwards. It's, it's pretty, um, psychologically safe as we keep going back to um yeah I, I guess that's the easy answer um it probably looks different in different parts of australia and in different kind of systems as they come through but um certainly it's becoming more professionalized at the um, academy levels and there's you know video analysts um coming through that side of things as well so it's becoming more normal to watch film it's just around how we think about film as a tool and how we set up that environment so yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're looking for some ideas, then yeah, Doug's blog is a really great place to start with that. And and I guess everything we've discussed as well, I hope it's on the money. Try it out. Right into the show. Tell us what you think. We'll do Paul Black <laughs> next hour. I, I do wonder, and I hate these generalizations around generations, but but almost that Gen Z, everything's immediate. Like they it's a digital age, right? Do you know what I mean? So they're not, they're not struggling as some older people might be with the footage and the technology to do it but I also now wonder if it's that attention point where they know it's useful and it becomes that highlight reel like they'll probably engage in watching themselves back but as you say maybe it's directing that attention to be what what's your learning or your reflection from this rather than just yeah I want to watch this because it's it's just kind of self-gratifying almost and, and maybe that's the in, like you can kind of just go, yeah, like this is going to make you feel good initially, but there's going to be way more to it because you then using it to want to get better, hopefully will extend that gratification well beyond just that immediate, you know, hit of, oh yeah, man, that was a great tackle. That was a great run or whatever. There's, there's maybe, I'd say, yeah, I, I haven't necessarily got an answer to how we go about doing that. I guess it probably depends on the individual, but I'm kind of just thinking how, how do we make sure it doesn't only end up becoming people, people just wanting to see their good bits. And, I, and I've heard stories in professional rugby, like that, that would be an analysis session for some players. They'd come in, they watch their carries, they watch their tackles and then they'd leave. And the analyst is sat there just going, 
shit like what do I do here like this is this is a guy that's being paid to play and they're they're not invested in their own development whatsoever they literally just kind of lining that up can I can I get the clips why oh you want to stick on YouTube and you're just kind of like Jesus like okay how how do I change that mindset I I don't it's just I think there's a danger there do you know what I mean there's a slippery slope to just letting that happen or actually the ones that really engage with it and understand it so yeah um I don't, I don't know if there is an answer there, but it's, it's certainly a challenge. It's an interesting area, isn't it? I reckon ACDC have made an awful lot of royalties from uh, being, being linked to highlight videos where there's a whole heap of tackles or dunks or whatever it might be. But yeah, I think Adam hit it on the head earlier when he said that, you know, use those highlights as a, as a gateway into, all right, that was the dunk, but what set it up? And I think that's where you kind of, you've got that really positive outcome. Now let's talk about the, the good stuff in the middle that led to that outcome. I think that's, I mean, but in some other cases, like I remember chatting to some rugby coaches once, um, I interviewed them for one of my, um, the studies in my PhD and asked them kind of, how do you tailor your feedback for different groups? And one of the coaches was just absolutely certain that the wingers, you can only show them the highlights. They just want to see the, you know, the 70 meter sprints and, you know, palming off four defenders and, I haven't shown them, uh, you know, a work on clip for six months, but that's just what they need. And as long as they're happy and they're feeling confident, then they'll play well the next game. And that's just part of part of what they do. I don't mean to stereotype wingers. I don't know much about rugby, but um, by the look of your laughter, Philip, there might be a bit of truth to that. Mate, they've nailed it, to be honest. I mean, that's how you coach the backs, right? Just, just yeah, yeah. Fair. Um, love it, guys. I'm really conscious of your time, but um, and I didn't prep this, so apologies. But have you guys got any recommendations um, just to kind of nudge people towards some other good reading or some stuff to look at in in any area? Like what's what's on your kind of reading list at the moment or your watching list? Or um, Alex is now going to the bookcase. I mean, to the Carl Woods books. Like, is that to the shelf? Is that Carl one one and only shelf? Just all all lined up? Or? Definitely has his own shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if if you've got one, if you guys you've got one in your hand, lead us off. What what are you kind of recommending for people to check out? Um, so the first thing I would recommend is actually the constraints led approach. Uh, Ian Renshaw uh, co-wrote this book with Keith Davids, Daniel Newcomb, and Will Roberts, all big names in constraints-based learning. And the best part about it is how they deconstruct specific sports with examples. And it comes with tables and resources that you can use, but it even explains in really simple terms all of the philosophies that we've spoken about tonight and especially like what are constraints what are we trying to manipulate um and it's very relatable and it's definitely designed for your average coach to pick up the book and start trying it with their athletes so i uh, cannot recommend that book enough um it's called the constraints led approach as if by magic you've teed that up really nicely because although it should have been recording after this actually but they've they've bumped it a couple of weeks but carl woods and will roberts are are both on with um yes with um oh look, look at rob fanboying loves it uh yes for an eco d special in a couple of weeks so that that will be um that'll be really cool that'll be really interesting so you've definitely helped me as i said in the in the whatsapp group you'll help me make me sound like i know what i'm talking about which i don't ever so that's all good uh adam any suggestions what are you recommending i recommend the same book that alex mentioned another one that uh that will complement it um sort of same sort of information but perhaps more direct towards a, a textbook i'd say 
is the, I'm just going to read the author list because it's extensive. So Chris Button is the lead author and then Seifert, Chow, Davids and Arouge. Uh, and so the title of the book is Dynamics of Skill Acquisition and Ecological Dynamics Approach, uh, which is a good one. And another one that's probably similar to those other two is by Chow, J.E. Chow. Uh, again, similar authors, Chow, Davids, Button, Renshaw. This one's Nonlinear Pedagogy skill acquisition. So really similar concepts, but I find it's beneficial to read similar information, but in different ways, because you always learn that little bit more. I think you get a, a broader understanding. But yeah, the, the one Alex mentioned, those other two, they're, they're the three books I go to frequently. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Rob, finish yourself what you're saying. Uh, look, other than the um, Easy Play ABBA songbook, um, I would like to also uh, recommend, yeah, Doug's book, obviously, Coach's Guide to Teaching um, is instant classic in my view. Um, I hope that makes it to the back cover of the next edition. Um, but also uh, there was a paper that came out this week in the Journal of Sports Sciences, and it's called Train How You Play Using Representative Learning Design to Train Amateur Cricketers. Uh, and Alex, who just happens to be on this call, is the lead author, and I would highly recommend checking it out. It's in my folder of to read, um, and I hope to get there later this week so that next time I bring it up, I'm actually armed with all of the content in there, but it looks to be a cracker. Love it. Alex, you've gone very red. It's a good recommendation. Um, Best plug ever, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> give, us, give us a brief overview. Go on, plug, plug, we're, we're shameless. Um, we did it. a training intervention and I pretty much wrote my diary as this uh, specific journal article about all of the things that we had to consider when using representative learning design. Um, so it's a great insight into a coach's experience of going to a club, starting the, the process of talking to them and asking them what they want to get out of a six-week program um, and then detailing exactly how I wrote the sessions and, and what came of them and any changes in behaviour that we managed to observe just by setting up an iPad. So it's almost like a, a coach's guide to the Create Galaxy. Um, and the, the goal was essentially that someone else could pick up the resources that I used um, and hopefully try the sessions themselves and, and see what they can find. Fantastic. Oh, that sounds awesome. Definitely put that on the reading list. So uh, great work. Well done. Um, guys, I've absolutely loved this. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's It's been a really, really great discussion. I think we've covered loads of areas and hopefully loads of kind of practical takeaways for uh, for people that are listening as well. So I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for coming on and contributing to a great discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Mm -hmm.